where we asked our CEOs uh, how they what they're expecting in terms of um, finding and retaining skilled labour in 2022. And it's very clear there from that slide in front of you that 73% of them expected to have difficulty. And I think it'd be interesting if we surveyed them now, you know, it's quite possible that this has in fact intensified. Um, but what was really interesting is that when we asked them what they planned to do to address this challenge, CEOs recognised that there are actually no quick fixes. Instead, they showed a strong commitment to investing in training and development, and even where the gains were beyond the short term. Hello, I'm Steve Davis, and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. In July 2022, the 31st annual No Frills Conference was held, but for the third year running, it was delivered as a virtual online event due to COVID-19 restrictions. Along with a series of standalone presentations, three live Q&A sessions were held, and in this episode, we'll share a sampling of these three events. Now, the vet sector has responded well to the COVID-19 pandemic, but how can it continue to support Australia's economic recovery and respond to Australia's shifting future skill demands? Well, the conference's theme was Vet's Role in Transforming the Future. We explore issues relating to the ways VET is adapting, anticipating and activating change in response to shifting future skill demands. The voice you heard at the beginning of this episode was that of Megan Lilly from the AI Group, who was one of two panellists for the Q&A session on day one. The Q&A followed Megan's presentation, which was entitled, In 2022, Australian Business Leaders Are Turning to Education and Training for Solutions. Let's listen to a small excerpt. Unsurprisingly, though, education and training really is back in the spotlight for managers. I'm not sure that it ever left, but really the intensity around it is quite sharp at the moment. And it's a really important moment, but great responsibility for all of us. So we wanted to look into this too. And it's clear that businesses are embracing upskilling and reskilling activities in order to respond to short-term labour and skill shortages. As these pressures ease over the medium term and indeed the longer term, particularly with the return of skilled migration, digital transformation will remain a persistent driver for job-ready skilled workers. The education and training system will be the linchpin that supports Australia's growing digital economy. It will be important that workers have high-quality training pathways that provide timely upskilling and reskilling. This will be essential to support displaced workers looking to get a foothold back into the economy in new occupations, different occupations or indeed merging occupations and also important to give young people the opportunity to gain skills in areas of growing demand. These results will require jobs and the training system to be flexible at every level. It will also challenge some of the traditional learning pathways that we've relied upon for so long. Many of them will remain good, but they will no longer be fit for purpose as the only pathway. And that not only will learning be continuous throughout the learning working journey, but the entry into new occupations will actually occur at multiple stages for life. And that we really do need to reconsider what those learning pathways in fact are. Our other panellist for the day one Q&A session was Sylvia Munoz from Skills IQ. 
Sylvia's presentation was entitled The Future Skills Needs of Service-Based Industries and Vet's Role in Delivering the Skills. Here's a short excerpt before we then play some snippets of questions and answers from day one. So... We've identified the skills needs and and for these particular industries, what we wanted to touch base, I guess, finally, is just understand what are some of the priorities that industry feel the vet sector should focus on. So you'll see there um, the question in black, in the short to medium future, which of the following issues should be a top three priority for the vet sector? And we presented them with with a list of of options. And it really uh, covered a range in terms of industry engagement, increasing government funding, employment pathways, etc. So Firstly, looking at healthcare, um, social assistance, community services industry, well, you'll see there some of the priorities voiced, industry engagement. Continue to liaise, consult with industry is really important for the vet sector to be able to ensure that what it's delivering, its training packages, its training programs are delivering the right skills for, for the workforce. The second one of most prominent is increasing government funding for VET. And when I share the others, you'll see, for example, here in um, re, uh, retail, increasing government funding for VET, another prominent um, priority selected by respondents in, in that regard. And also apprenticeship training models of learning, which are uh, really important and what employers and organisations feel um, are important pathways in regards to getting entrance into the into the industry and also providing the the hands-on training that that many occupations require and lastly just in tourism travel again increasing government funding for vets so I guess the the theme is about funding and um, the relationship is if government funding can be increased and courses subsidised, well, then that um, should attract uh, individuals into these qualifications and then um, flow into then the workforce and, and industries and, and support them in that way. So really there's... Um, the, I guess there's some of the the key uh, f- the key feedback that we've had, and um, and but also importantly, you'll see that industry engagement is is key. Megan, with almost two thirds of CEOs reporting that they'll deal with skill shortages by upskilling their existing talent, I wonder if we could start the session with a brief recap of what the critical issues are that they'll face with that strategy, especially when you note that traditional learning pathways are no longer fit for purpose. Steve, thanks for that question. And um, uh, look, first of all, I think it was actually very encouraging to see that they're actually going to focus on upskilling their existing talent, investing in the people you've got. It's a very, very healthy thing to do. And it's part of building up the skill base of the nation. And a lot of um, what we need to do is focus on existing workers, not new entrants. And that's really the comment that I'll get to later, but about the um, traditional pathways. But um, just because they said they're going to upskill their existing workforce doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And I just think some of the challenges um, are, are really, I think we actually probably know what the challenges are but it's actually being able to meet the demand in the way that the demand wants to be met. Um, So it will involve a lot more shorter form credentials. Often we just use the term micro-credentials, but it's really short um, 
courses, digital badges, workshops, all manner of things will, will, will um, fit in that mix. And they'll need to, to be very targeted and very timely. So that's going to be quite a challenge for provision. Um, and, you know, clearly if they're not relevant, they won't fly. Um, there's also going to be cost and accessibility issues. And there's always a bit of an issue about who pays. But I think really I'm not I'm not really focusing on the cost issue and that so much because employers in the same survey actually said that they will increase their investment. So I think that there's some comfort in that. Um, but we, we really need to remember that the work environments or companies at the moment are exceptionally time poor. So fitting in training of any form is going to be a challenge and to make it meaningful is really important. So we aren't just suffering skill shortages or difficulty in recruiting people. We are suffering very significant labour shortages in the country at the moment. So it's in that context that we're trying to upskill existing workers and that's going to be a very significant challenge. But just a few quick things to add to that yep. um, is that um, we do have some poor skill um, mismatches in the work place already so we need to keep working through that and that's not going to resolve itself anytime soon um, we also have a need for an increased level of digital literacy or digital fluency as part of just about every job across the economy so it workers and indeed managers and others you know everybody will will need to have increased digital capability and that will need to be developed isn't automatic i mean some people are digital natives but a lot aren't um, and we have a perennial problem about language literacy and numeracy in our existing workforce, very significant challenges. So there's a lot of work to be done, um, but if you're not going to do it now, I don't know when we're ever going to do it. <laughs> well, that's true. Look, I've just got one other follow-up. Um, in your slides, it captured the fact that 21% of CEOs will be turning to overseas recruiting and outsourcing to respond to these skill shortages. And as we emerge from the pandemic, that does become an option again. But do you think the lack of access we've had to overseas workers during COVID-19 exposed a weak underbelly of Australia's workforce training and development environment? I mean, has access to the overseas labour supply sapped the urgency of addressing some of these long-standing issues that we've known we've had to address? Oh, it's sort of yes and no. So before the pandemic, we did have skill shortages. I mean, clearly they're much more heightened now than we can remember even before the GFC. Um, but there's no doubt that, that um, you know, we papered over some cracks and it wasn't just skilled migration that did that. You know, the, we didn't have the um, tightness of the labour market that we've got. So a number of things contributed to it. But, the, I mean, the labour market's exceptionally tight at the moment because, um, you know, there's 500 500,000 job vacancies in the country and they're across the economy and across geography. So, you know, it's enormous. It's a very, very difficult problem. We haven't had um, inflows of um, population inflows, whether it be skilled migration, international students or backpackers for, you know, two plus years, but we have had outflows. People have repatriated home. So it's yeah. been a very, very, so we've got a really significant deficit there. So it has exposed the cracks, but we should be honest, those cracks existed before and we knew about it. Um, so, you know, I think if nothing else, it's put the imperative on facing into it, mm. but we mustn't fall into the trap of just addressing the short-term problems. We actually also need a medium-term view of this. Sylvia, um, I was actually quite surprised by the survey results across all sectors in your presentation. It seemed to show that digital literacy skills, uh, automation of jobs and new technology were kind of right at the bottom of the list of issues of workforce challenges during 2021. And in fact, 
uh, your figures painted a picture of industry being on an emergency footing because apart from COVID's direct impact, the overwhelming issue is not having enough people. And it reminded me of those aeroplane messages where there's a drop in cabin pressure. The rules say, put the mask on yourself before you help others. Now, in that context, it reads as if industry is likely to be focused on just getting humans first before turning their attention to training and skills. Now, what do you think of this interpretation? And if it's got validity, what challenge do you think it poses the vet sector as it tries to respond? Yeah. Well, look, um, Steve, given the tight labour market, I'd agree with you at first to say, yes, it is about getting humans through the door, getting humans into, into jobs and getting them doing doing the the occupations. But look, in saying that, I really did want to raise the point that while supply is a critical issue for these industries, um, it can't be isolated from the conversation that industries are having regarding skills. So you need not only just humans, but they need to be able to have the skills to do the job that they've been employed to do. And if they don't have the skills, at least be able to learn the skills to be able to to deliver that. So I guess um, I've been thinking it through and there's a, a triage of S's on the issue. There's supply, there's skills, but there's also sustainability, which is about retention of staff. So if you can get a worker in and you can keep that worker, well, then that's a really important pathway and and resolves in a way some of the the workforce supply issues that that are happening because this the industries of focus are really um it's they're very competitive like for example the the retail um, industry tourism travel and hospitality in the employee landscape is incredibly diverse and, and competitive so there's actually uh employers are competing just for workers themselves. So, um, for example, in retail, I think latest figures I saw, 145,000 retail businesses, and the majority is small to medium size. Within um, tourism, travel, hospitality, um, a big driver of the visitor economy, which is um, uh, a key focus for Australia to, to continue driving the um, its competitive and economic um, progress. Uh, over 300,000 businesses, one in eight businesses across Australia are in tourism, travel and, and hospitality. So really the, the landscape of these industries, it's very competitive. So I guess the, the issue is firstly getting a supply getting the skills, but also retaining the workers. And look, saying that we, um, last year, we we presented our longitudinal study that we um, followed uh, two sectors, aged care and commercial cookery. Um, and, and we followed individuals through their, their training journey, but also into the, the employment sector and understand their employment experiences because um, anecdotally, and, and I'm sure that there's data out there showing that there is a leakage in aged care, in healthcare, in, in hospitality. People are leaving the sectors and, and not returning. And based on those figures that, that I showed earlier in the presentation, the forecasts of over 87,000 personal care workers, over 11,000 chefs, like it's really important to be able to plug that issue of, of industry leakage. And one, I guess, uh, what we uncovered in that was really 
entering the the employment, the the sectors themselves, people are really driven by by a passion to help others, especially in aged care. Um, within cookery, they've got a real passion for cooking to be creative. But once they're in the in the industry, once they're in the work environment, there there are issues that that are causing some to to leave. And so, what we found was um particular like lack of opportunity for for growth and development for for um challenges they really are uh i guess driving lower satisfaction levels through the years so what we found were really whilst it's about supply skill i think the the sustainability is is an important factor in that and, and can i just i guess also mention the the point about um uh, I guess digital literacy automation of roles didn't play as high as um as you would expect as a challenge compared to skills training and um and uh and staff recruitment but I guess what's really imperative for for the sectors that that are presented is that they are people facing industries so if people the person the worker themselves are key in the the industries and so while technology and and um and uh digital literacy are important and they're very much shaping the the sector the industries that that um, people are working in, they um, it's all about the the worker themselves, and I think that's something that that we need to put a focus because I'm not surprised that skills train skills issues and and staff recruitment were were key in particular with health, retail, and tourism because these are workers that um, in a way technology is there, but they're they're enabling service delivery, but in the end the the individual the the person is at at the at the center of, yep. of all these industries. On day two of No Frills 2022, we had two more speakers joining us for a QA session. The first of these panelists was Ian White from NCVER. Just before the QA began, Ian delivered his presentation entitled Upskilling and Reskilling The Impact of COVID 19 on Employers and Their Training Choices. Here's an excerpt. Now, one of the biggest impacts generated by the COVID 19 pandemic has been the rapid digitalization in the way that businesses deliver their products and services. Um, in fact, Bauman and Callan found the key driving factors for workforce training across most industries is the digitalization of work processes. Likewise, a report by the Australian Industry Group 2021 flags the accelerating digitalization industries as creating urgent skilling demands for employers. And they asked employers to indicate the digital areas where their employees most needed the capabilities or needed their digital capabilities increased. So they ranked basic digital skills as number one. So they were looking for their employees um, to have just the basic digital skills to operate in an increasing digitalised environment. Number two were cyber security skills. So we're looking for skills to keep company or business information or customer information stay safe. Uh, number three uh, was data analysis skills. So due to increased digitalisation, they were collecting more data and they were looking for skills to leverage on this, maybe to um, investigate customer trends or improve on business processes. Our other panellist for the Day 2 Q&A was Kira Clark from the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. Before we play some of the highlights of the panel discussion, let's hear an excerpt from Kira's presentation, which was entitled, K 
key lessons from a systemic change approach to strengthening skills pathways to work for disadvantaged young people. Over the last 20 years, we've seen a common core set of policy levers used to drive improvement in our training system. More incentives and subsidies to promote training participation and commencements, more regulation and quality control, a diversification of qualification types and modes of training. As we look to transform for the future and enhance the role the training system is playing for for young people in particular, we need new ways of reforming the system. And that means we need new ways of evidence making that cut through entrenched policy and system rhetoric. Because understanding the ways in which people, training products, pathways, practices and policies of our VET system interact and behave requires a diverse set of inquiry modes and ways of doing research. Kira, I'd like to start with a a question to you. Firstly, in this realm of vocational education and training policy, wheels tend to move slowly. So while it'll be heartening to see more sectors start to embrace the models of training and support that you were talking about, do you think there's a risk that as time elapses, existing vulnerabilities for disadvantaged youth might become so significant that they could become a barrier to young people achieving skilled full-time work? Yeah, thanks for the question, Steve. Um, You sort of say, is there a point in the future? I think the time is now. I think we already have substantial evidence that points to significant vulnerabilities that are limiting young people's access to training and to sort of meaningful, decent, secure work. Um, And I think addressing these effectively really requires a little bit of a mindset shift. So we often talk about young people themselves being vulnerable. And I think we need to shift to really focusing on the structural conditions of the training system and the labour market that can hold these vulnerabilities in place. Uh, So shifting from a deficit way of thinking that it's young people are the problem, to what are the the structural barriers, the structural conditions, the way the training system operates um, that, that can reinforce or hold some of these vulnerabilities in place. Um, I'm thinking about particularly the opening address that Minister O'Connor gave yesterday, and he talked. To, he used this language as um, future-proof livelihoods. So, how do we we get a, a training system um, that doesn't sort of reinforce vulnerabilities, but creates the conditions um, that um, remove barriers? Because um, young people need to have a, a sense of trust and faith that the training system is going to live up to its promise of providing a pathway to decent, secure work. And I think at the moment. Um, you know, it probably sounds a bit harsh to say, but in some ways the training system is failing on that promise. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done. How can we build adaptability into a training and career development system that's going to be able to respond to the triple threats that are upon us now? Inflation, production chain disruption, and higher costs for investment. Yeah, and I I like the way you framed that around adaptability of the training system because, again, it's often the adaptability of young people that we talk about, young people needing to be agile in response to these things. So I think there's probably three things that I think are really key to um, moving towards that adaptability. I think the first is around a shared understanding of the problem. Um, again, sort of recognising that that we have uh, low completion rates, that we have problematic conversion of training into secure work, um, and that we need to sort of um, recognise collectively the system, the policymakers, practitioners, those working within the system to make it better, um, that there are things that aren't working, tried and true mechanisms are no longer fit for purpose to this changed environment. 
from that shared understanding of the problem, uh, we need to embrace the need for system redesign. Uh, a lot of the sort of movement that comes out of training reviews, like the Joyce review, tend to tinker around the edges. And the training system is this massive beast. It can feel really overwhelming to embark on whole system reform. But we've done it before in the late 80s and the mid-90s. Um, it's certainly time to do it again. Um, and so we need to do that intentional redesign work. And I think the third part is about building the capability from the bottom to the top of the training system to collectively embark on that system redesign ambition. Ian, do training organisations appear to be able to move fast enough to meet employers' needs for upskilling and reskilling, this first part of my question, and and how do employers find the training they need for their people when the implications of change aren't necessarily clear? Well, thanks thanks for the double barrel question to start with there, Steve. Um, so starting with the first part, where uh, do training organisations appear to be able to move fast enough? So this requires a little bit of unpacking. So there's no doubt that employers would like to see faster and more flexible qualification development within the accredited VEC sector to respond to their needs. However, this is not necessarily under the control of training organisations themselves, as they're constrained by the speed at which accredited courses and programmes can be developed and updated. And there's a lot of work under, currently underway to streamline this process. We do ask in the employers' uh, um, use and views of the VET system survey, we ask employers about um, how satisfied they are with the flexibility of, with the provider in meeting their needs. And that sort of runs around about 80, 90, 80 to 90% of employers say they are satisfied with that. So they're, they're satisfied that the employers um, yep. being flexible in, in you know, attending to their needs. And in terms of the relevance of skills, skills taught, um, that's a similar proportion of employers, so about 80 to 90%. So... Um, training providers, are, are, they're scoring pretty highly in that area. Now, I also note that training organisations and employers um, did prove themselves remarkably adaptable when responding to the challenges of COVID-19. For example, many of them were able to adapt the training to an online mode of delivery uh, when the lockdowns were in place. So moving on to the second part of your question, um, which talks about um, uh, employers um, needing to uh, react to the implications of change that are not necessarily clear. This is tricky because there are a lot of structural changes taking place in many injuries, industries, mm. um, making future skill needs uncertain for many workplaces. So um, this is where industry bodies, associations, employers themselves can play a key role in identifying the future knowledge and skills needed. Um, you know, you know, the National Skills Commission also published a lot of information, research and data in this area. In terms of finding the training, we do know that some employers, for some employers, the perceived complexity of the accredited VET system is a barrier to them using it. This might mean that training organisations need to extend on the role of a deliverer of training and act as a navigator of the VET system, you know, because they're the ones with the specialised knowledge of training products. So this would entail uh, training providers closely collaborating with employers and industry to map out future skilling needs and uh, then recommending and developing training products to fulfil these. Uh, this might include a blend of accredited and unaccredited training. Because in your talk, Ian, you mentioned uh, the warehouse manager. Uh, who said most staff were unskilled, had little appetite for training, but as systems became more automated, they expected staff will need to change that mindset. So from that anecdote and from your recollection of the various studies you've seen, how differently do employees understand the need for change in comparison to their employers? Certainly in sub-industries, um, especially those with an ageing workforce, uh, there can be some resistance to changes uh, in ways of working. 
particularly as a result of digitalization and new technologies. Now, I went to um, Denise Cox's presentation yesterday, uh, she talked about strategies to increase online student engagement with content. And I asked Denise uh, what tips she could recommend uh, to employers who are delivering training online to their employees to keep them engaged. So Denise said, like, they need to grab their self-interest. So why is it useful to them? Why is it important? And why is it relevant to them? So if it feels like a checkbox exercise, they like to treat it as such. If it feels authentic, uh, genuine and necessary, they're much more likely to understand the need for the training and engage in a much more meaningful way. So I think those strategies can be applied more broadly to employer training in general, not just online. So if employers can see what's in it for them, uh, then they like to be on the same page as the employer and like to be more engaged and motivated into upskilling and undertaking training. All right. Let's turn to a question from Ben in relation to VET delivered to secondary schools. What's your take on the nationwide impetus for improvements to VDSS? Uh, for example, reports from Firth, Shergold, Joyce, etc. What's the most significant change you'd like to see? Yeah, VET in schools, my, um, my first love when it comes to VET research. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, have some NCVR funding a number of years ago to do a large piece of work in this space. Um, I, I think we're still a long way off from where ideally vet delivered in secondary schools should be as part of a, um, a really robust youth training offer. I think there's some really interesting reforms in place um, happening within the different states and territories, watching very closely what's happening out of the first review where I am in Victoria, which is removing um, our Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning, or VICA, which has been around for many decades, and um, bringing a, a specialist vocational major back into senior secondary. I think the most significant change I would like to see is a focus on um, the, the pathway out of VET delivered to secondary schools. One of the um, weaknesses of it is that it is still used um, as a retention mechanism by schools to keep young people in using um, pathways and subjects that aren't aligned with job opportunities and aren't setting them up for success post-school. And I think there are other ways of building the generalist, transferable, um, common vocational skills outside formal accredited vocational education and training. So I think there's, there's still some work to do to differentiate technical development, setting young people up for post-school pathways, as opposed to vocational learning that builds broad base for employability. Chris has uh, sent in a question, re-accredited versus non-accredited training. Do learners and employers value micro-credentials slash digital badges for certain capabilities or as evidence of potential capability? Yeah, so looking at this one, particularly through the lens of um, skills for the green transition, so I think there's huge um, value um, from an employee perspective if we think about some of those evolving and emerging occupations uh, that are going to support decarbonisation and the move towards a circular economy. Um, a lot of that's going to involve um, existing workers upskilling through micro-credentials and digital badges um, to demonstrate adaptability to sort of shifting ways in which the job roles work. I think where um, learners or um, job seekers or existing employees can be at risk is if those micro-credentials and badges aren't coming on top of an existing base of capability, competency, some sort of foundation. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with the language of stackable skills, but, you know, if anyone who's played with children's blocks, if you start to stack them too high off a narrow base, some point it's going to topple over. You want that broad base to then support your stacking of micro credentials on top of. 
Day three of the No Frills Q&A sessions focused in on the delivery of VET and on pathways beyond VET. One of our panellists on day three was Hugh Guthrie from Lucid Proprietary Limited, and I have an excerpt here from his presentation, which was entitled Delivering on Quality Vet Delivery. What the good RTOs really try to do is build a culture of quality assurance and continuous improvement. They're about providing a good quality um, student experience and outcomes rather than just being compliant or regularly uh, in a regulatory sense. Collecting and using good information is really important and that provides the basis on which they can decide how best to improve. And the important thing is that the data they gather is often deeper, richer and more diverse than those uh, measures that are important um, or judged externally. So providers or really good providers very often have far richer data than is actually reported externally or is available to outside stakeholders. Other things that are important are things like collaborations and partnerships, and increasingly we're seeing that uh, that trend in a um, uh, post-COVID world. Working with industry and employers is very, very important as well. And finally, the recruitment, the retention and professional development of their key staff is a particularly key issue. Our other panellist on day three was Damien Oliver from the National Skills Commission. And before we hear some of the Q&A session, here's a taste of his presentation. Pathways from Vet Courses, Insights from the Vet National Data Asset. So an outline of today's presentation. We return to a um, familiar topic for vet research, which is um, the match between vet qualifications and occupations in the labour market. Former NCVER colleagues, Carmel et al, published 12 or so, 14 or so years ago, the publication Is Vet Vocational? That questioned whether or not we were seeing really the effective utilisation of Australia's vet qualifications in the labour market. What we're hoping to do today is look at a familiar set of questions. In particular, do we see vet qualifications leading to employment in intended occupations? Or, in fact, is what we see that vet skills are transferable across a range of occupations? And we'll be doing that with a novel data source. Hugh, I'll start with you. How much is the delivery of quality vocational education dependent upon how we teach instructors and students how to learn? Yeah, great question. Thank you, Steve. Look, a lot depends on the the quality of um, uh, the instructors themselves. And in part, that's about their, their personal attributes, like their enthusiasm, their empathy for students, their uh, organisational skills, their caring, their vocational currency. All of those are important. But um, it's really how they learn and develop throughout um, the beginning of their career and, and throughout the rest of their uh, career. We know they're time poor. We know that they're often uh, casual uh, staff. And so while we think about um, what sort of qualifications they should have, and there's been considerable debate over that over the period of time, presently it's set at the Cert 4 uh, level, the Cert 4 uh, TAE, and a lot of people will actually um, find it quite hard 
to find the time or are a bit reluctant to do that, uh, that qualification, don't see it as a priority. But uh, there are arguments for um, higher level qualifications as well. The important thing, though, is to have access to a wide range of professional development, which is informal, can be um, uh, sorts of short courses. It can be, and I see somebody is there from the Vet Development Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, Carol. Um, the um, and also, um, you know, these longer and more um, more formal programs. But what you really need is a supportive environment. Um, encouragement from um, right across the organisation. So that gets back to the quality of um, leadership and management. Mm-hmm. So about the quality of the students, um, they have different needs, uh, which teachers have to be mindful of. So it's about uh, providing a quality experience uh, for them. It's about empowering learners uh, and it's about the the, um, the features that uh, our teachers have Um, to assist people to learn as effectively as they can. In your presentation, you mentioned that enablers of high-quality vocational education are those that pay attention to student experience and outcomes rather than just being compliant. But if that's the case, should we actually be lifting the bar and enhancing our description of what compliance actually entails? Yes. I mean, I'm on a mixed feeling. I would like to expunge the word compliance from um, from the VET lexicon, to be honest, because I think it takes the debate in a particular direction about, you know, meeting uh, particular areas rather than this whole notion of we're trying to be as good as we can, we're trying to be better all, all the time. The notion about compliance, that's sort of saying there is a, there is a point, you know, that you're... Uh, trying to set that things out. So I think it's it's sort of opening things up to uh, possibilities rather than being compliant, if that helps answer the question. A couple of warm-up questions for Damien, though, that arose from my viewing of your presentation. How has data integration changed what you can investigate, so what you can investigate, and what we can actually understand these days? The possibilities for data integration compared to, you know, the data sources that we've otherwise had available to us, particularly around surveys, uh, they've done two things. One, they'll enable us to look at outcomes over a much longer time period. So that's actually, you know, that that longitudinal aspect. The data that we presented today only had a kind of 12-month view, but as we uh, get sort of more confident using the Vanda data set, for example, we'll be able to look at where students get to from their training two, five, ten years out, and that will enable us to look at um, a much broader range of outcomes. The other, the other thing uh, that it does is it makes it easier for us to tr- um, to look at the outcomes and the experiences of vulnerable groups because survey um, survey responses overall diminish, especially with successive waves of longitudinal surveys, and that's usually especially the case for vulnerable groups because they might have less permanent addresses, they might feel more reluctant to take part in a survey. So the other advantage of working with integrated data is around vulnerable groups. And there's a third one, which is it actually forces you in a in, in a very positive way to be more collaborative with uh, other users and other producers of data. So uh, as part of Vanda, we work very closely with the Australian Bureau of Statistics 
Uh, and I just wanted to kind of give a, sh a shout out to our ABS colleagues who I know have joined us for today's session, uh, Michelle Duckett and Alto, and, and there might be uh, even some others with us as well. And that really enriches our understanding of the data because it, you know, to use the data, we need to um, get agreement amongst ourselves on what the appropriate research questions are. That right. brings in people with fresh perspectives and fresh experience with different questions. Uh, and the result overall is, um, is a really richer set of research questions. What use can be made of a longitudinal analysis of unique student identifier data. Interestingly enough, with the VET National Data Asset, um, we don't rely on the um, unique student identifier to do our data linkage. The ABS, with their great deal of experience in this, uh, are able to use um, other data sources, other fields to conduct the linkage. Um, but where the unique student identifier will really help with um, research is the type of research that we're all able to do outside of the secure ABS data lab environment using using the total bed activity collection itself. So um, the USI will enable us to much more easily track students' movements through the uh, vocational education and training system. So we can see you know much more easily, if someone did a, a, a Cert 3 10 years ago, are they popping back up and doing a diploma? Is it in the same field? Are they experiencing sort of career progression or have they moved into a different area? And what might we be able to kind of learn from that in terms of people's career trajectories, um, as well as the, I guess, the efficiency and the effectiveness of the VET system in, in terms of particular qualifications? Hugh, there's a question to you from Erica. What is your view on improving the qualification levels of VET teachers? It's been a long-running question, actually, and a long um, history of people feeling that the Cert IV um, wasn't meeting the needs. And, in fact, I've, um, because I've, I'm a, a very old person in TAFE or VET, um, it used to be called Vomits, I was in the next office from the person who designed the Cert and what it was designed to do was saying, vet teachers are getting well enough trained. We need some training for people who are training people within industry. That's what it started off to try to do. Then it became a bit of an all thing to all people. And so I guess the TAE hasn't been the ideal qualification for everything. So you've had uh, diploma level programs, you've had um, associate degree programs, and you've had degree and postgraduate qualifications. All of those are important, but they're not the only qualification that's important because what you're trying to do is balance between, you know, a qualification might help an average teacher become a little bit better, but sometimes it's really the characteristics of those persons, the extent to which they have the personal capabilities and, and what have you to be a really good teacher. So how do you make them better? Well, you make them better by enabling them to talk to their colleagues, to benchmark, uh, to collaborate, to undertake uh, various short-term programs that they might need to do. I, I remember one time in Western Australia, we were talking to um, some people to say, well, how are you going to make your uh, programs better? And they were saying, well, the trouble is we're working with displaced people and um, refugees, and the first thing we have to deal with is torture trauma. Now, that came out of left field for me, but there are this very wide range of, of needs and they have to be supported uh, by the provider and offered through a range of agencies and uh, the Vet Development Centre in Victoria is one of those that, that does that sort of thing. So uh, my answer, I guess, is yes and no. 
Um, a higher level qualification will always help, but it's not the only, uh, only solution to the problem. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.